Welcome to episode nine of Av Talk. I am Ian Pechnik, and I am here as always with the meowing cat and Jason Rabinowitz. Hello. Well, not the same. Not the same folks, by the way. It's it's two sep. There's a cat and Jason. You can't be sure of that. This is audio. I'm telling the people what they should expect. Oh, all right. Okay. So it's July fifth, and. Uh, my 4th of July was a bit different than I thought it would be. Yeah, sorry about that. And it's all your fault. Yeah, I take full responsibility for the shenanigans that happened yesterday. So, to bring everyone up to speed, and we'll move through this quickly because it's not the point of the story. To bring everyone up to speed, a person that was on an American Airlines flight from Phoenix to New York City posted something on social media accusing the flight crew of being inebriated because of multiple turns that the aircraft made while approaching New York City. Jason responded after the airline responded. Jason responded because this person was insistent that that it was the case. Jason responded. I responded to Jason's response and the situation escalated from there. Long story short, the flight crew was not at all inebriated. The follow-on accusation that the air traffic controllers were inebriated is false. And it turns out that in very, very congested airspace, air traffic controllers have to provide direction to aircraft so that they can safely land. This person was unfamiliar with it, perhaps, and we're moving on from that segment of this, we'll call it shenanigans. Definitely shenanigans. That's the perfect word. So what we want to talk about now is how do aircraft get from wherever they're flying, the altitude at whatever they spend most of the flight at, down to their destination airport? They don't just hover down from 30,000 feet into the terminal. If only that were so. One day. One day, Ian. So aircraft leave their cruise altitude on a flight. They're they're flying at, let's say, 35,000 feet. Growing up as a kid, you always heard airplanes fly at 35,000 feet. And then when you get into this, you realize that, well, they're not all flying at 35,000 feet. That would be a very bad thing. I always wondered how marketing firms pick like, enjoy Wi-Fi from 32,000 feet. Like, why is it 32,000? Why not 33 or 31? Wi-Fi doesn't work at 33,000 feet. Everybody knows that, Jason. It doesn't work at any altitude. So the aircraft is getting close to the destination. They leave the cruise altitude. If you're in the plane, you feel that kind of the engines roll back. You feel that little maybe 0.1 negative Gs as you begin your descent. You get the announcement. We've begun our initial descent. And then you're on your way. And then as you're coming into the airport, you notice you're not going straight down. You're not going down and straight. You're making turns as you go towards the airport. Because the pilots are communicating with air traffic control, and air traffic control is telling the pilots that they should descend to a particular altitude at a particular speed and fly at a particular heading. Because planes are coming from multiple directions, and runways are a singular direction, so you end up getting issues where planes have to fly away from the airport or next to the airport or across the airport to get in line to land. I think that's the simplest explanation that I can possibly give. And this flight was into New York, JFK specifically, in I think the evening. And 
As most people know, New York has some of the most congested airspace in the country, if not the entire world. We have JFK, we have Newark, we have LaGuardia, we have Islip, Republic, Teterboro, and that big island of Manhattan that no one's allowed to fly over at a certain altitude. So all these planes coming from all over the world all converge into this 16-mile bubble and all compete for the same airspace. And on certain days, it is controlled chaos, I guess. Everyone is competing, like Ian said, for the same runway, the same airspace at the same time, and you can only have one aircraft on a runway at the same time. So some of these approaches are not exactly as published that they deviate a bit, actually, because you have to fit more aircraft into the available space. And some of them look a little weird, which is, I guess, kind of what happened in this incident. Yeah, it, I mean, it, for anyone not familiar, you know, it, it can be an interesting question is why are we flying away from the airport? I can see the airport, but we're flying away from it. And, and basically, the idea is that you're, you're getting in line. And and just think of it like a like a theme park or or something or or waiting in in the security line before you got on your plane. Sometimes you have to wind back and forth to get everybody in line. Exactly, and um, there are plenty of approaches to JFK. Uh, reading some of them on this list, there's the uh, Pauling two, Part two, Lendy six, Kensington one, Cameron four, Rober two, and these are all standard approaches from any particular direction. I think Rober is from the east, Cameron is from the south and the west, and they're basically standard published approaches of where these aircraft should maneuver to, at what altitude, at what not at what speed, but basically where they're supposed to go. And on days where there's a lot of flights all trying to land at the same time, it could get a little elongated. So a lot of flights from uh, the region, you could spend more time on approach over the New York City area than your actual flight took. I know I've been on lots of flights from Buffalo to JFK where you cross over JFK and you still probably have 20, 25 minutes left in the flight. It's infuriating because you're so close, but you keep flying in the opposite direction, but that's just how it works. Yeah. So it turns out that the person who made the original comment complaint didn't want to hear any of this and it escalated, the situation escalated from there. But it got me thinking about where did this come from? And it's, you know, approaches can be an interesting kind of thing that, that that's lesser understood than, you know, flying from point A to point B. Yeah. Aviation is not about flying from point A to B. It's about flying safely and with a whole bunch of your other friends up there in the sky. And obviously, everyone wants to go to the same place at the same time. So it's there's only so much air traffic control can do to get everyone where they want to go at the same time. So take a number and basically wait your turn and you'll get in line at some point and you'll end up where you want to go. And so where did you go this week? I went to Kansas City for a wedding, almost didn't make it. I highly discourage anyone from booking a flight out of LaGuardia. But um, after taking two hours to get to LaGuardia, we had a three-hour delay, a three-and-a-half-hour delay for an hour-and-a-half flight that ended up being three hours because of so many reroutings around storms. We had to... <laughs> Remove four passengers from the flight since we were overweight from all the reroutings. Hats off to Delta because they immediately came on board and offered a $1,000 voucher to um, four passengers who immediately sprung to action to claim. And all said and done, 
our flight crew missed timing out by six minutes. So explain that one for, for people who don't maybe don't know what timing out means. Flight crews need eight hours of rest. They can't work 12, 15-hour shifts. So this was a bit of a stretch for this day. Our, um, in, I was tracking our incoming flight all day, and it kept switching around different CRJ-700s operated by ExpressJet. And our flight was supposed to be coming in from Pittsburgh, and it did take off immediately went into a holding pattern due to um, weather between Pittsburgh and New York and diverted back to Pittsburgh, which is not good when you're waiting for that plane to come in. Thankfully, um, some magic happened. They swapped us out to another aircraft and kept that flight crew with that aircraft instead of having them go all go out to a new aircraft. They stayed with the aircraft. And after a whole bunch of delays pushing back, dealing with the hour and a half takeoff wait line at LaGuardia, we were in the air six minutes before it would have been illegal for our flight crew to operate that flight. That's a, l- a little bit of a stressful situation. Yeah. Um, I really would have been kicking myself if the flight crew timed out and we canceled and I didn't take that $1,000 voucher. But hey, it all, it all worked out in the end. So, so you were basically saved by the fact that Delta was able to, to swap a plane. Uh, 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 not Delta. Express Jet. I'm sorry. Express Jet. ExpressJet was able to... It says Delta on the plane, but it's operated by ExpressJet. The airline that was operating the flight (laughs) was able to quickly swap something out. Yeah, we stole the aircraft from another flight. Um, Whoever they are, I'm sorry. Not sorry, really. (laughs) But yeah, they, they were pretty good throughout the day in swapping the aircraft that was assigned to my flight. And um, really good to see proactive measures taken like that. And just in case, I had the um, the one of the employees in the Sky Club at LaGuardia protect me on three flights um, the next day, but thankfully, I d- didn't need them. So you were saved by being able to swap a flight. We're going to talk to Jeremy Dwyer Lindgren in just a moment, who was on a Norwegian delivery flight, and we'll expand on the conversation about uh, some of the differences between low-cost carriers and, and legacy carriers and, and how they operate flights and, and some of the good things, some of the bad things about that. So stay with us. We'll be right back with Jeremy. Welcome back. We are here again with Jeremy Dwyer Lindgren, who is a aviation uh, reporter that uh, often works with USA Today. And he's back joining us because USA Today sent him far across the pond in a much smaller plane than normal. Jeremy was on the 737 MAX 8 delivery flight for Norwegian's first uh, 737 MAX. And so welcome back, Jeremy. And uh, we're glad you could come talk about uh, Norwegian's new planes. Hi, Jeremy. Hi, Jason. Hi, Ian. Thank you both for having me back. I thought the first time was, uh, well, we'll see how it goes. But uh, that was... Um, <laughs> That was a beta version of the show. We we have our things worked out a little better today. I don't think you're recording on like a phone next to an iPad next to like a computer mouse or something. Not today. Today I've upgraded to a standard recorder, uh, but last time was the iPhone next to an iPad. It was very complicated. Only the finest for this production. That's exactly. Right. Our, our production value is steadily increasing. You can you can make really quick like week over week gains when you start at the bottom, you know? But, I mean, well, we start, the first episode was, you know, two tin cans and some strings. So 
There's, we can only go up from there. Yeah, the, the audio integrity was still pretty good, and we're still here somehow. Yeah, I mean, for for it was it was high quality string. Very. <laughs> well, thanks for being on the show, Jeremy. We'll talk to you two thanks, weeks from So you hop to the plane, and there. So I mean, just tell us about because delivery flights are, are kind of a mystery to to people that you know you buy a new plane, and and what happens. Well, eventually it rolls off the line and some pilots come and fly it away to wherever it needs to go, usually back to headquarters or a company's big maintenance base. And that's how planes get their start after they come off the line. Uh, but for the big ones, things like Norwegian's first 737 MAX flight, they, they make a big big deal of that. Uh, they invited a bunch of uh, press to come on board and there were some staff on board. And then in this particular case, they auctioned off 12 seats through the same folks that do Megadoo, if you guys have ever heard of that. And uh, they, they did a charity auction for UNICEF. I think they raised something like 24000 uh, to go to UNICEF, which was nice. What's the, what's the delivery flight like, and, and how is it different from just a normal flight? Well, delivery flights are different primarily because there's almost nobody on them. So... Uh, it's going to be a pretty stark contrast to the folks who are going to get on about a week from now after the Wi-Fi and a couple other improvements are installed on the plane. But I think there were maybe 35, 40 people on the plane total. Uh, everyone had a row to themselves. It was pretty chill, pretty easy. They served a couple meals uh, en route. And it's Norwegian, so there wasn't much in the There was no Wi-Fi. There was no TV. I think the only thing in my seat back was the safety card, which I do now have. And that was about it. It was uh, The window was the best form of entertainment, which is great because those new CFM engines look really nice and that wingtip is sharp. But that was... That was it's a, Paint is still shiny. Uh, very shiny. Uh, but that's pretty much all there, all there is to do. Nine and a half hours of window viewing. Yikes. So I know I've been on a few delivery flights, some very long ones um, up by you, Seattle, all the way to Doha, which was like a preposterous 14 hours. But it was a fully kitted out aircraft. It had Wi-Fi, it had entertainment, it had power, it had everything a long haul aircraft is supposed to have. You didn't have any of that. So what did you do for nine and a half hours other than look out the window? Surely you did something else. Well, I got on the plane and it occurred to me I may have bitten off more than I could chew. And then I began to understand why my editor perhaps bailed at the last minute. It began to become a little clearer. Uh, for the most part, I worked. I had to pump out a story and we wanted it to be on the folks who'd auctioned to be onto the airplane because certainly these are not flights that you can go in a book. Uh, they're not available to the public. You can't just go in and get one. So for non-media and non-airline staff to be on a delivery flight was highly unusual. I don't, I, I can't recall seeing that before actually. So I wound up having to talk to a lot of people on the flight and get to know them a little bit and find out who might work for the article. But really other than talking to your fellow passengers and looking out the window, there wasn't, I'm not exaggerating, there wasn't anything else to do. So you got a taste. It was a long nine and a half hours. Yeah, you got a taste of what the 737 MAX is supposed to end up doing, doing these long, quasi-long haul routes, which Norwegian has already started doing to the uh, northeast U.S. Flights like uh, Stewart International Airport north of New York City up to uh, over the ocean to Ireland, which is maybe six hours there, seven, maybe eight on the return, probably less than that. Do you think these... Seven threes are really the right aircraft for the job after being on it for over nine hours. 
That depends on who you ask. If you're asking Norwegian, obviously the answer is yes. It, it improves seat mile costs pretty dramatically. Uh, the range is much better. You're not risking as much mechanical or fuel stops. Not that you have a lot of those options, but theoretically less stops in Iceland on the way over with the Max versus a 737-800. If you ask the passenger, that's potentially a much different story. Uh, the, the pitch was... Uh, the space between seats from one point to another was was not as drastically awful as I expected it to be, but the slimline Recaros that they put on board, it's it's going to be a long seven hours for the passengers back. They will be installing Wi-Fi eventually, uh, I believe before they're pressed into service, but it's a modification they make back in Oslo, uh, and that will certainly improve it by quite a bit, but... Um, it's it's a it's a long flight for the passenger, and I would definitely prefer going on a wide body most of the time over going on a seven thirty seven. Certain just for the claustrophobic feeling, if nothing else, that's a packed airplane for a long time. Norwegian has been operating seven eight sevens over the ocean for quite a number of years now. They're a, they were a fully seven eight seven transatlantic or I guess long haul airline and they're actually kitted out quite nicely. I think thirty one inch pitch, they have seat back entertainment. Um they will have Wi Fi eventually, like the Max will have Wi Fi eventually, not yet, maybe in a year or so. But if it's between the seven three Max and the seven eights, I know what I'm picking every time without question. No, it's not even a contest and, and uh Norwegian was nice enough to put me up on the Dreamliner in their premium class on the way back and it was a first-class domestic seat with an economy plus service, and it wasn't half bad. And in the back, uh, I've read a lot of reviews from people who've done uh, economy in the back, and it's certainly you get a heck of a price uh, and reasonable service that can be compared at times with uh, has compared has compared favorably many times with some of the big legacy carriers like Delta and British, of course. Uh, when things go well, things go well, but where you have these standalone carriers run into problems is when their schedule goes downhill and their their hub gets socked in or something else, and then options for rebounding go dramatically down, and that that's where people and a lot of these long-haul standalone carriers run into big problems. Yeah, unlike major global airlines that may have one or two or even more uh, spare aircraft in their fleet. So if one aircraft breaks down or gets stranded somewhere due to weather, they can press another one to the service. Norwegian doesn't have that option, do they? No, they have a pretty heavy fleet utilization. Um, on the way back, our airplane uh, inbound aircraft was coming in slow from Oakland. So even though we were missing tons of connections, you wound up just having to wait for the plane to get there. If it had been pulled out of service... It, it's not like they just have an extra Dreamliner sitting around to pull in. It's, you're going to have to wait until one frees up or they're going to have to find a new new way for you. Yeah, but there's... That's kind of the downside to them. Yeah, there's definitely some advantages, though. I mean, they're opening these routes that no one has ever thought about even serving before, like uh, Hartford, Connecticut to, to Europe, Stewart to um, over to Europe. Some of these routes are kind of ridiculous, but they seem to be working. Well, I mean, that's the thing. Is, is there long-term potential for, I guess, two questions. Do do the routes make sense? And then is there long-term potential for people who don't care about the comfort factor, who just care about, I want to go from A to B? Right. And there are definitely people north of New York that don't want to hassle with driving all the way down to JFK and Newark to catch a flight. 
when they can just take a slightly less great experience from their local airport up north and be there that much quicker and that much cheaper. Yeah, I think as to whether the routes make sense, time time will tell on that. There's certainly no shortage of low-cost leisure carriers like Condor that have started serving the U.S., and they make a big fanfare every summer, but we're going to launch 10 new routes and major expansion, but then the subtext to that is they dropped six of last summer's. And uh, certainly Norwegians done that as well. Is San Juan still going today? I don't think I don't think it is. But they made a big deal out of that. And uh, they also dropped their uh, Caribbean flights out of uh, Baltimore. Right. So uh, a lot of they're launching something like twenty long haul routes this summer. Uh, it's pretty insane. And I'd love to see how those hold up in six months to a year. What what percentage of the, those are still going? Yeah, just today, Norwegian announced service from Chicago and Austin, Texas to London and Boston and Newark and Oakland to Paris. Mm -hmm. So that's a pretty dramatic expansion. And Ian, you get a new airline in Chicago. Good for you. I, I, you know what? We do. And we also get the the 787-9, which will be fun to see. Another thing fun to see. And and I'm thinking about taking it because... It, it it's not a terribly well-timed flight going over. You get in at about 5 a.m. in London. Ooh. But it's not terrible. I mean, considering that it's a, uh, what are they, so the tickets are 179 pounds. Uh, so, a, you know, a little over $200. And they added this year, uh, just recently, a daytime salmon flight from JFK that leaves something like 8 a.m. at a JFK arrives Heathrow maybe 10 or 11 p.m., which is just fantastic. It's a transatlantic non-red-eye eastbound. It's awesome. That's a great time. And I, I hope, yeah, it's, I, anytime I can take a transatlantic daytime flight over to London, I absolutely do it. BA offers it, American offers it, and now Norwegian's getting in on that. And it might be the thing that finally pushes me to actually book Norwegian. But I'm kind of concerned that what if I'm on one of those flights that's delayed two hours? I don't want to get into Heathrow at two, three in the morning. So we'll see if the price is right. I'd do it though. Just coming back to where Norwegians dealing with you know the fleet utilization, we're talking about you know airline the low cost carriers that are dealing with that. Like wow, where they've had days where it's taken them to get back to any semblance of normalcy because of you know weather at their hub airport. Yeah, well, when Norwegian first started service at JFK, they didn't even have their 787s yet. They used the least uh, 747s, A330s, 767s, whatever they could find to fill in the uh, service, they did. And this was for a good year that you would never actually see a Norwegian 787 simply because they weren't built yet. Yeah, I was going to say it was Norwegian operated by Highfly. Yeah, um, Euro-Atlantic and Hi-Fi basically refurbished their entire fleet, probably because of the uh, proceeds they got from Norwegian. And for that matter, Lot Polish was picking up some of those wet leases, too. Yeah, who knows who was actually paying these bills, though. Whether It was, it was a weird combo of uh, whoever happened to be available that day. Yeah, we get some weird substitutions for Norwegian every now and then, which is, which is good for them that they don't just cancel these flights if, if they have an aircraft out of service. They'll lease an aircraft from whoever they can for a month at a time. Um, the experience is usually a lot, lot worse, but it's better than not getting there at all, I suppose. 
Well, I think it just turns into more a max experience because I've looked at a couple of those and they, they subbed in a WAMO 767 or something. I don't know. But the interior doesn't look like it had been updated since 85. There wasn't even like the tricolor screen or anything. It was just the seat back. So I think they're, uh, they're just buying into the short haul, long haul max experience instead of the Dreamliner one. So I think it might not be that far off. My favorite airline that these uh, other guys lease from is Privilege Style. They have like 1767 and just the weirdest name out there. Yeah, I mean, Privilege Style, they have they have a nice, it's kind of like a 90s chic livery. Yeah, uh, on and a, a and, 90s chic interior. Well, there's that. But I mean, does any, I mean, we're talking about this and and, and the question that I always come back to and, and the question, I mean, Ryanair is probably one of the most successful airlines on the planet. EasyJet's extremely successful. Spirit, Frontier, all of the Asian low-cost carriers are extremely Ooh. successful. So, I mean, I guess speaking from a data standpoint, it doesn't matter what the interior of the plane looks like. It doesn't matter how comfortable the seat is. If the price is right, people are still going to buy the tickets. Yep. There are people who will pay for a better experience. There's plenty of those people, but there are always people who will want to buy the bottom of the barrel. Yep. And those are going to be the the types that they're going to get over and over again, especially once the U.S. becomes more, when U.S. travelers become more familiar with the concept of long-haul spirit airline style travel. I think at the moment, they're not super susceptible to that. Uh, Long-haul travel, I think, still just looks like I I buy a low ticket and it's on an airplane and it's on an airline. They don't think of it as the same. I don't think it's segmented in the minds of many U.S. travelers in the way it is for Europe. Of if I want my full fare class and changeability and want uh, to grab a meal, then I'll I'll take Lufthansa down to Cape Town. But if I want to just get there because I only want to pay two hundred bucks, then I'll hop on Condor or I'll hop on Eurowings or I'll hop on Thomas Cook. I think as they begin to penetrate that market, which I think they're, they're still at a total seat capacity, they're still only in single digits, which given how many routes we see open up, doesn't it, it seems like it should be much more than that because we hear about it as though it's an invasion with Norwegian popping up in a new city every other day practically. But in terms of total carrying capacity, they, they represent a fairly small amount of the market, but I think they represent a gigantic potential. And that's why you see all of a sudden these big carriers rushing back into creating low-cost subsidiaries, which we haven't seen since the 90s and early 2000s. Will we see a return of TED? Oh, man, I hope not. (laughs) No, I don't think so. There are a lot of people who would want to bring Song back, but I'm not sure TED is one of them. No, maybe not. But look at what's happening in Europe. I don't think TED brings up that nostalgia. No. IAG has their own long-haul, low-cost level. Air France is going to do one yep. that I can't remember the name of. Uh, Lufthansa has CityLine, which is just uh, Lufthansa aircraft operated by CityLine pilots and crew. Uh, there's a lot going on in that sector. All the mainline big guys are trying to, I don't want to say copy Norwegian, but Norwegian jumps and then BA or Air France or Lufthansa jumps right behind them. Yeah, and they've been stuck between the choice of, of having to compete on those leisure routes by either depressing fares in their existing metal and thus endangering the business traveler and everything else because they travel on frequency rather than on just getting there. So you, you've seen a couple of them that will just change their pricing model and 
segment uh, their pricing even more, which is what you're seeing a lot of the American carriers do, offering basic economy tickets. But the Europeans have generally gone the route of creating the subsidiary, uh, which is interesting. I'm curious which one will do better in the long run, either the expansion and more segmentation of pricing on existing plane or whether the return of uh, the subsidiary, like uh, your uh, level and Eurowings, will wind up performing better in the long run. Or if it's all just an overreaction in Norwegian, the appetite for Norwegian goes down over time. Well, I mean, Level's an interesting case because it... Which I don't think it will. You, I, yeah, I don't think it will either. But Level's an interesting case because they're basically a virtual airline. They, they don't actually exist. I mean, it's just Iberia. No. It's it's Iberia's AOC and mm-hmm. new paint on a plane and, and a new pricing model. So it's it's interesting to see how that's kind of going to work out or not, as the case may be. Kind of a short-term plan. IAG just kind of took an aircraft that was available. It's got basically the same interior economy and premium economy that Iberia has, the same Wi-Fi, the same uh, hard product, but it just happened to be a new aircraft that they could press into service um, to do what they needed to do, I guess. Yeah. I mean, it, so the 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 low-cost long haul is, it's not new, but it, it seems to be, to we're kind of at an inflection point where there, there's like Jeremy said, there's two models that are kind of competing out and seeing which one's going to work better. Is it, is it a pricing model where you get less service versus some people who get more service because they paid more? Or does everybody get the same teeny tiny amount of service? And then if you want to pay more per service item, I guess you can. I don't think that it has to be a zero-sum game there. I think the answer can be both can survive and do well. I, I think that you might... I wonder how much room and space there is for a ton of low-cost standalones uh, as we see a proliferation of you've got AirAsia X, you've got Jetstar and everything else. How well will these survive in the long haul? I don't know. Because I think I think Norwegian was saying something like it needs to get load factors in the upper 80s, lower 90s, which is extremely high for this to work. And Ryanair had the opportunity to go into long haul and took a pass. So I, I still think that it's it's at a tipping point where it feels like it's gaining the momentum that Freddie Laker could only dream about of uh, you know really moving forward and gaining mainstream acceptance. And certainly... The big carriers going into subsidiaries, I think, is an indication that it is gaining that mainstream acceptance. But I still think it's a tall order economically to support. And high 80s, low 90s load factors are, are nothing to sniff at. I think industry average still hovers around 80 or 85. So that's that, that's a lot to, to bank on. I think that's still a pretty tough, tall order for them. Well, and especially where they're flying into. I mean, with the max... Well, the the 738s and and then the Max to come, especially. I mean, those load factors will be interesting to to see where you know Hartford and and uh, Stewart Airport. Where are you, are you really going to get into the 90s with those? Are there that many people who are willing to to go away from JFK or, or Newark or or wherever? I mean, I, I think that'll be an interesting thing to to find out and. Hopefully it works. Yeah, I think I think those are good, interesting questions because I, and 
I don't know. I was looking at a, I think NYC Aviation or might not have been them, but one of them came out with a recent review in which the the inbound flight got canceled or something like that. And I think it's another one of those Norwegian when things go badly, their ability to recover and pivot and act nimbly is just it's not there. And that's where I think is going to be the make or break. When things go well, people are going to love it. You see. You move into a new market and you put out, gee, I can go round trip on a bare bones ticket for 200 to London Gatwick round trip. Like that, that's nuts. That gets my attention pretty quick. And I probably would hate the entire experience. I love my Delta, but, uh, that's a really attractive way to get attention. And, and people love hearing that. But, uh, if you start to get enough of these, we're all the way out in Stewart, which I was willing to accept. But then the bus, the, the flight got canceled and they were going to bus us back, but they couldn't get a bus driver to come out. They're going to have to have that ground support and they're going to have to have a lot of ducks lined up consistently to get things to work well and, and accommodate people well and treat them well when things go badly. If they just take the model of, hey, you paid 20 bucks for a ticket, so forget it. I think that they're, and that happens a lot, I think they're going to start getting that reputation that they've kind of already gotten long haul, which is you roll the dice a little bit on whether or not you get there or get there on time or get to the city you plan on going. Uh, so I, I think if things go well and they support people well, when things go badly, I think they'll probably be okay. But if, if they start earning a reputation that gee, they strand two flights a week out at Stewart on these buses in a tiny little room uh, they're going to run into trouble pretty quickly because that reputation is going to go south real fast. Yeah, and remember, when you fly one of these ultra-low-cost carriers like Norwegian or Spirit or, I guess, um, Wow Air, they don't have any partners. So if your flight is canceled, they are not going to rebook you on anyone. Whereas if you fly Delta, they will rebook you on KLM or Air France or somebody. Or United will rebook you on Swiss. These airlines ultra low cost they're ultra low cost because they don't have any partners so if you have a canceled flight that's basically it you have to wait for the next norwegian or wow air flight they're not rebooking you on anyone right and we saw a little bit of an example that i i, I never got an example i was going around with the people at the airport in oslo the day we arrived uh, after the norwegian events had wrapped up and there were just bags everywhere 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 and apparently they'd had some sort of weather delay or computer glitch, whatever it was, didn't matter. Uh, but the end result was a lot of bags wound up stuck in Oslo. And SAS, which has the Star Alliance, they have tons of partners, had moved out most of its bags by the same time the next day. Norwegian still had to move in on only its metal. And those the piles of bags that were waiting for those poor Norwegian travelers, I'd, there were a ton of them, and they weren't going anywhere anytime soon. There might not be another flight to that destination until next Tuesday or whatever. It could be a weekly destination, and you're kind of just out of luck. And there might not be space on that plane when it shows up either. If they're running 90%, 80% load factors, those holds fill up mighty quick, especially when you're creating a business model that encourages that. Good luck getting that bad back. But otherwise, I think they... I, I, I think I uh, was talking with you, Jason, a month or two back, and I needed to go over to Europe later this year, and I was looking at a Delta Redemption on the way back. But on the way out, I was looking at Norwegian because it was a decent price point, and I wanted to try their premium economy. 
I don't, I don't recall you advising me favorably in their direction at the time. Uh, but luckily I got the opportunity to try it without having to necessarily, uh, fork out a ton of my own money for it, which is always a nice way to do it when you can even, uh, but I, I get the value proposition. If, if you give me a choice, if I didn't have a tie to a loyalty program and, uh, I'm only going point to point, say only London Gatwick or only Paris, their value proposition goes up dramatically. It's this, like the price point is just so good. We're not looking at Delta booking uh, $700 for premium, but you save 50 bucks on basic economy. We're looking at hundreds of dollars difference. Even after you put in for say a bag and a meal, it's still a substantial difference. And I think that value proposition is extremely good. Uh, I, I get it. And especially with premium economy, the service was virtually indistinguishable from that, that I would have gotten on any of the major carriers anyway, with a better seat and only for like two or $300 more, which if I'm just going by myself or it's my wife and I, that's a pretty easy sell. And even in the back, it's not substantially different and it's still much cheaper, at least on the Dreamliners. That doesn't apply in my opinion to the max, but for those Dreamliner long haul flights to the West coast, I just, it's an extremely attractive proposition. Yeah, we're going to have to keep a close eye on this one and see how it develops, I guess, over months or even years. But it's pretty cool that you got a sneak peek. Yeah, we'll see how long the routes last or or what changes they make. And Jeremy, thanks for joining us. It's always a pleasure to have you on and, and hopefully we'll have you on soon uh, to maybe talk about uh, some aviation photography stuff. And we can uh, we can talk about some plane spotting. I'd be happy to come back. Tell people where they can find you on Twitter. You can find me at photo as in photography, JDL. That's Juliet Delta Lima, photo JDL. Jeremy, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us. Likewise, guys. Have a good one. Take care. Bye, Jeremy. It's always good to talk to Jeremy because his his perspective is is both one of somebody who is passionately in love with aviation, but also somebody who has a a pretty level head about the the business prospects of of things coming up. So it's always good to talk to him. Yeah, he gets to do all the fun stuff. He, well, he he does have that going for him, which is you know constantly constantly jealous of the things that he gets to do. So speaking of uh, the business aspect of things, uh, if you've been on a British Airways flight this week to some destinations in Europe, there's a good chance that you've flown on a Qatar Airways A320. Yeah, um, there is some union uh, troubles, I guess you would say. Uh, BA has a couple different unions, and the mixed fleet union, which is um, their lower paid flight crews, I guess you would call it, who work both, I think it's uh, medium haul and long haul, uh, they're on strike right now. And obviously when your flight crews go on strike, they can't operate the flights. And if you are a major airline, not operating flights is kind of a problem. So BA has resorted to plan B. Yeah. And it's a plan B that is made possible by, it's it's kind of a domino effect plan B because Qatar's not using the planes because they would normally use the planes to fly to their short and medium haul destinations that they're currently blocked from because those countries aren't allowing Qatar registered flights. So Qatar's got planes sitting around. 
BA says, well, we need planes. And so they wet leased the planes, meaning they get the aircraft and the flight and cabin crew for them to come fly for BA. It was originally going to be two weeks, but now it's going to be even longer. As It's going to be a while. Yeah. So they, they, they're legally allowed to operate them for up to two months. So we'll, I guess we'll see how long the strike lasts. And it's not a super coincidence that Qatar happens to be um, wet leasing these aircraft to BA because actually Qatar Airways owns 15.01% of BA's parent company, IAG. So this isn't some uh, random occurrence. There is actual you know, corporate tie-in here. But for passengers who I'm guessing are getting more of a surprise and delight kind of thing, I'm not sure if BA is telling them ahead of time that they'll end up on one of these Qatar flights, even though you can find them in the flight schedule if you're so inclined. But these uh, Qatar A320s, at least all but one of them, are vastly better than what you would normally find on British Airways, which is just all sorts of ironic. Yes. I mean, it's they the Qatar, they have... A, a proper premium class in the front of the plane. Yeah, there's a real business class. It's not just um, economy seats with a middle blocked seat. It's, it's a pr- true first class recliner like you would see on Delta United or American. And then there's entertainment screens. Uh, there actually are not. There are not. There are not. Okay. So yeah, you, these, you can look out the window. You can look out but the not window. Not for nine and a half hours. Yeah. Um, Qatar has loaned BA their, some of their older A320s, which don't have entertainment, but they are vastly more comfortable, both in economy and first, except there is one curiosity. There's one Qatar painted A320, which actually is an XL Maha A320, which is kind of an airline that sort of never really existed, yet I somehow managed to fly anyway. It was destined to be uh, Qatar's Saudi Arabian LCC, and they just never got operating authority. It, so it was kind of reabsorbed back into Qatar Airways, has been flying with them since 2015 when I flew them. But there is one that is peppered in the, the schedule that is not a very comfortable aircraft in economy. But it has USB port, so yay. <laughs> it's the little things, I guess. Yeah, yeah, that's good. So, I mean, it'll be interesting to see what happens if the Qatar blockade is lifted while BA is flying. I mean, that that's something that it doesn't seem very likely that's going to happen right now, but it would be something that I would be very interested to to see how that played out if it did. Yeah. I can't imagine, obviously, that the union is too happy that they're being um, strike broken, I guess you would call it right now. But um I mean, what do you expect BA is going to do? They're not just going to cancel these flights if they can help it. They're going to get people where they need to go. But I, I can understand both sides of this. The union wants, they want better pay. And the airline wants to honor their obligation to passengers. So this is, I don't want to take any sides. But uh, it's very, very strange to see Qatar operating for BA. Yeah. And, and like you said, it, it, I don't think they're telling passengers ahead of time. So obviously, everyone's kind of caught up on the news by now if they're flying BA because they've probably been flying it more closely than than others. But it was just kind of an odd thing to, to walk up to your gate and to, oh, they're flying Qatar Airways today. 
Yeah, and remember, it's with um, the full flight crew from Qatar Airways. So you're getting their pilots, their flight attendants, and even, I believe, the full meal service. So typically on BA, you have to pay for uh, drinks, you have to pay for food, meals. Qatar is, they're taking this opportunity as a bit of a marketing stunt, too, that they're mentioning uh, their Skytrax rating on board, they're giving out free uh, hot meals on board. So this is kind of a win-win-win for Qatar. Well, all right then. I mean, I, I I'd assume that. I mean, why not? I guess. Yeah. If 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 you're in the situation, why why not? They get paid to do a little marketing stunt, so good for them. But why don't we end this week with a stupid story? Well, we we began we began this episode with with kind of a crazy story, and I think it's only fitting that we end with one. Do do you wanna do you wanna set this one up or I'll take would you one. like me to? I'll take it. All right, go for it. So um, we talked to John Ostrauer probably about a month ago about Chinese aviation and how a lot of people in the country haven't ever flown in the past. That if you see if on any one of these flights, a lot of these people, this could be their first experience with aviation, and a lot of um, social norms that you might see in places that have been flying for decades now isn't really in place just yet in um, in countries like China. You sometimes see these stories of um, passenger opens emergency door to get fresh air while on the runway. In this case, a passenger decided to chuck a bunch of coins in the engine as they were going up the uh, air stairs in a bid to um, obtain some good luck. And the airline doesn't like when you toss metal into their jet engine. That costs many, many tens of millions of dollars. And believe it or not, it, the good luck didn't happen. Their flight was delayed many hours because of this. Well, I mean, you're, when, you, when you toss coins into an engine, they're, they're going to delay the flight because, well, they need the coins back before they can fly. So I, I guess that, uh, that, that didn't factor in to the, the tossing the coins into the engine for luck. So we've heard of bird strikes. We've potentially, maybe one day, we'll heard of drone strikes. But I think coin strikes are a new one. That it's definitely a new one, and it they they showed pictures of you know the nine coins that they found, and it was just rather impressive that that you got nine coins into the engine. I mean, she I mean, probably I just took a fistful of them and chucked them into the engine. Yeah, just... But remember, an A330 engine is not a fountain. You should not be throwing anything in it. No, ever. ever. So that that not, not only has this been a, a podcast, it's also a public service announcement. That's right. When you see an A330 or any really jet engine, please Don't do not throw, throw anything in it. into it. Anything, not just coins, anything. Oh, boy. On that note. On that note. This has been episode nine. We'll be back for episode 10 later this month. We haven't been canceled yet. <laughs> Part of me thinks that you that's what you're aiming for here. I would never hope for such a thing. Well, if you, have, if you leave the program, I mean, we're just going to have to have the cat fill in. Uh, I can arrange that. <laughs> if you like what you hear, if you want to hear more of Jason's cat, if you want to hear more about anything, drop us a note at podcast at fr24.com. Leave us a note on Twitter at FlightRadar24 or on Facebook, the same. 
and let us know what you think about the podcast. Let us know what you want to hear more about. A lot of people have been writing in with some suggestions, and we're working on putting some some good programs together with those things, uh, with people who know much more about what they're talking about than we do. So hopefully you'll stick around for those in some future episodes. If you listen on iTunes, give us a rating and leave a review. It helps more people find the podcast, and we can keep doing what we're doing, and uh, we can keep talking about you know, crazy things happening, like people throwing coins in engines or providing a little bit more information about how, how flying actually works. How does it work? Magic. It's all magic. Uh, yeah. See, there you go. Aren't you glad you listened? <laughs> so this has been episode nine. Thank you everyone for listening. I'm Ian Pechnik and that was Jason Rabinowitz. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.